Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. May God bless the reading of his word. Whitney and good morning church family. It is uh, as you have heard today we've been talking about uh, Reformation Sunday. Uh, just uh, it's always good um, even as uh, I preached on last Sunday about the dangers of tradition but traditions can be good so long as they do not contradict God's word and one of the great things about the Protestant Reformation it was a renewal of a commitment to God's word. And, uh, and that's what we're commemorating uh, somewhat today, not really primarily, but secondarily, um, as we all come here and gather to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is interesting to note that uh, today or this week will mark the 503rd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, where in 1517, Martin Luther uh, began the Protestant Reformation by nailing the 95 Theses uh, to the Wittenberg Church door. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with what took place after that, well, it was a remarkable event, a miraculous movement of God whereby the gospel spread throughout Europe like a tidal wave as people found the hope of Christ unleashed as the word of God was unleashed. And the word of God came uh, to the very people uh, that it had been concealed from, and the hope that their sins primarily could be forgiven once and for all in Christ. And at the center of the Reformation was the gospel, in particular, that we are saved, that we are, here's the big word, justified by faith alone. And this doctrine of justification that we see uh, particularly in the letters of Paul, this doctrine of justification declared that salvation, it does not come from looking at our own works done in righteousness, but it comes by looking outside of ourselves to another, particularly to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who put their faith in him, God declares 
justified. He declares righteous because we are in Christ. He forgives us of all our sins, both past, present, and future. Although this was the truth that was reclaimed uh, 500 years ago uh, through the likes of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, and many others, this is the same truth that we need to be reminded of today. This is the hope that we need today because our world is full of false hopes, aren't they? Our world is filled with false identities, things that people think that if they can have, they can achieve, they can find true and lasting worth, but we know that that is all sinking sand. There are false gospels, false saviors, and we need the gospel which provides true and lasting freedom and joy in Christ alone. The beauty of this message is that it is for everyone. For every tribe, tongue, nation, people, there are no exceptions. Whoever comes to Christ by faith, get this, is accepted by him, is made right with him, and is comforted by him for out or throughout all eternity. And this is the message for us today. This is the message that was reclaimed in the Reformation. And most importantly, brothers and sisters, this is the message that has been declared and presented to us in the Scriptures for all people in every era. And here in our passage, as Whitney read for us, we see Jesus marveling at the great faith of a very unlikely woman. One that you would not expect it to be found in. And this shouldn't surprise us because what we know about God's grace is that it is always surprisingly more wonderful than we could ever think or imagine. As the scriptures tell us, where sin abounds, guess what? Grace abounds all the more. And that is the heart of this story. For this woman, Matthew identifies her as a Canaanite. You can see that in verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that region of Tyre and Sidon came to Jesus. Now, what's the significance of her being a Canaanite? Well, Canaanites were pagans. Canaanites worshipped false gods. And, and really, for the case of this story and the significance of this story, Canaanites were one of Israel's worst enemies throughout their history. In fact, it was the people of Canaan, if you're familiar with the Old Testament narrative of Joshua leading the people into the land of promise, that was the land of Canaan. And what was Israel supposed to do? Israel actually was supposed to wipe out all the Canaanites and be an instrument of God's judgment upon this people. So as a result of Israel's disobedience, Throughout the scriptures, you see the Canaanites tempting and luring Israel away to serve the false gods and follow their pagan practices. Well, by the time of, of Jesus, Canaanite, that word, to identify someone as a Canaanite, was, was, as we might say, politically incorrect. It was a derogatory term. It was a racial term that, was, that wasn't typically used unless you were a Jew and you wanted to speak disparagingly of one of these people. If you were to look in Mark's gospel, that's in chapter 7, you don't need to turn there, but Mark uses the more, um, I guess, uh, appropriate 
identification that she was a Syrophoenician woman. And you can even hear her identification by her ethnic background. She was a Syrophoenician. Nevertheless, Matthew, by calling her a Canaanite, is highlighting how despised this woman would be in the eyes of the Jews. See, what you need to understand about the Canaanites and this woman, as is, is, is maybe those would have seen her, she wasn't just your run-of-the-mill pagan. She, they wouldn't have viewed her as your just run-of-the-mill unbeliever. No, this, was, this person would have been viewed as the worst of the worst. If anyone deserved the judgment of God, this woman did. In fact, she shouldn't even exist, you could imagine a Jew thinking. This people group should have been judged and wiped out, and the only reason this person is here today is because we were unfaithful. Well, we're not going to make that mistake again. You can see how that logic would run. And yet this Canaanite woman, it's unlikely suspect, expresses remarkable faith in Jesus, as we're going to see this morning, and ultimately will find mercy from him. Well, what's the basis for her finding mercy here? What are we going to see? What is the only basis that this woman is, is able to come to Christ and have any hope of blessing from him? She has nothing to offer she is the wrong race. She is the wrong sex. She is the wrong, she worships the wrong God. She is the wrong person to find any mercy today. Well, what we're going to see is the only basis that this woman can find mercy is by faith alone. That's the mantra of the faith, faithful from all, uh, from all of history. It's what was reclaimed in the Reformation. We see it here in this encounter with this Canaanite woman, that faith alone is what is the only grounds by which she was able to find mercy. And what I want us to see as we dive into this text is that such faith is not momentary. It wasn't just a momentary faith. No, such faith was not flippant. It was not superficial. No, her faith, Jesus says, was great. And why was it great? Because it was fixated on him. We could put it another way. Great faith, as we're going to see, is humble faith. Great faith is humble faith. It does not look to oneself, but it looks outside of oneself and looks intently upon Jesus. Therefore, this morning, what I want us to see is seven characteristics of great faith. That's what we're going to draw out. There are many things we could draw from this text, but I I think it'd be helpful just to draw out and look at this woman's great faith. Jesus commends her faith to us. In fact, this is why this story is here, so that we may examine our own hearts. Do I have such faith, is what you should be asking. Do I believe like this woman believes? And so we're going to see seven characteristics of great faith, so that we too may humbly fixate upon Jesus and lay hold of the mercy that is found in him alone. And so when we come to the text, we see that great faith, first of all, comes to Jesus. And you might be saying, oh, that, that's the obvious, Chase. Uh, we, we, we understand that faith comes to Jesus. But I, I don't think that's that obvious in our day. Many people talk about having faith, but it has no object. 
They are a people of faith, you might see it. We hear politicians, I'm a man, I'm a woman of faith. But what exactly does that even mean? And we think that that is virtuous. Or even sometimes people say, I'm a Christian, I I believe in Christ, but their actions betray that confession because they show that their true faith is what they go to, what they put their trust in, where they find their security in, what they place their hope in. Here we see that this woman's faith is demonstrated, it is manifested, it is made visible, if you will, in the fact that she seeks out Jesus and comes to him. Now, if you look here in verse 21, we see that Jesus had withdrawn from there. Where had he withdrawn from? He had withdrawn from this encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes, this issue of uh, of contention uh, of, uh, between the scribes who had come from Jerusalem to test him. And, and Jesus is now has withdrawn and he has gone into the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's the land of Canaan, or Canaanites territory. And what you need to know is that when Jesus would withdraw from an area, he withdrew to lay low, to hide. And you can see why he might have hid, because he just had this confrontation with religious leaders. We'd seen this earlier, actually, in, in chapter 14. After Jesus had heard of the beheading of John the Baptist, he withdrew from that area. Why was he withdrawing? Well, he was associated with John the Baptist. And he's, at this point, he's not ready for the final confrontation that will come and ultimately lead to his crucifixion. And why is this important? Well, because he's not easily found And yet this woman seeks him out when he's not easily found. Mark actually tells us that he was in a house. He was not out in public. He was hiding. And yet this woman somehow finds out that Jesus is near. And she seeks him out. But not only that, and don't underestimate this, She knows he's in her area. She comes out and seeks him and finds him, but she does so knowing that she is an outcast. She is an enemy of God. I don't know if you've ever maybe seen a famous person out in public, but sometimes you feel like, well, I'm not going to go introduce myself because I don't want to bother them. We maybe feel that tension. One time I was at a Panera, it was over Christmas, and uh, I'm sitting there and John Calipari comes in and he sits at the table right next to me. And, uh, and all I could do was get my phone in a little position and click it <laughs> as proof that this story was real. I didn't want to bother a guy. It was I to come and bother him. He clearly wanted to have a meal by himself. This woman gets up the gumption and the nerve to go find Jesus when he doesn't want to be found at this point. And she is unworthy. Now, we don't know how she knew about Jesus. The story doesn't tell us that. But no doubt she's understood that she has a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity before us because Jesus just doesn't show up in Gentile territory. Jesus just doesn't show up in your town. And she hears about it, and she thinks, this is my one shot. This is my only hope. And she couldn't miss it. And so what we're, we're, we're thinking about this, okay, what is faith? Faith is a deliberate decision to go find Jesus and go to him. She heard of him. 
She heard the message of him. Somehow the word had, had gone out. Maybe someone was saying, he is staying at my neighbor's house. That Jesus we have heard about. And the word traveled and she believed and she went forward and followed him. She went to find him. Well, in the same way, if you're here today and you are hearing of Jesus, you must come to Jesus when he may be found. Many people aren't humble enough to do so. Many people aren't humble enough to come to Jesus and search him out. Yes, sometimes Jesus finds us when we weren't looking for him. Many of us have those stories of, of I was running uh, full um, throttle in my sin, was not seeking after him, and yet Jesus was putting and seeking. And it was very clear that he was putting people in our, our places. But oftentimes, he's only found by those who search for him. Now, we know that he is ultimately the, the seeker. Well, from a human perspective, he is found when we seek him. And you might say, well, how do you do that? How, how do I search for Jesus? How do I find him? Well, you do so where he may be found, and that is among his people. This is where two or three are gathered. There I am in your midst. You're only going to find Jesus where his body dwells. And we are his spiritual body, united to him by faith, united through the Holy Spirit. And he is found where his word is proclaimed. You're not going to find him in some journey to find yourself. You're only going to find him when you gather where he is found. So great faith doesn't just go where Jesus can be found. Great faith cries out to him. And so when we see, and this is our second characteristic, we see that she finds Jesus, what does she do? She cries out to him, verse 22, have mercy on me. This woman comes to Jesus because she is a desperate woman. She's in desperation and she tells him of her desperate circumstances. She, she cries out to him because her daughter, she says, is severely oppressed, severely tormented and afflicted by demons. She has a demonically oppressed child. And again, we are not told what this looked like, but perhaps as we've seen in other accounts throughout the Gospels, maybe she's suffering violent seizures. They're afflicting her regularly. Maybe it's affecting her mental faculties and she seems crazy. Other times, demonic affliction can show itself up in physical disabilities. Sometimes it makes one deaf and mute. Well, whatever the affliction may have been, it manifested itself in such a way that it was severe and destructive, as always the demonic influences of the world are. And there are very few helpless situations you can imagine to be in, especially when you're a mother or a parent and it's your child who's afflicted. I remember several years ago, this is when our oldest daughter was about five years old, we were at the uh, Oxmore Mall in Louisville and for some reason I didn't want to go to the stores that Sarah wanted to go to and I wanted to go to another store and uh, and. Grace followed Sarah into the store she was going and then changed her mind and said, I'm going to go with Daddy. Well, I had already left. And so we were doing our own thing. And when we reunited, I was like, well, where's Grace? And she goes, I thought she was with you. 
to which the terror and panic had set in. And we are frantically looking in all the stores, looking everywhere, and they are shutting down the mall. And I can tell you at that moment, you were utterly helpless. And we were crying out, Lord, save our daughter. Keep her. We have no idea where she may be found. Fortunately, we found her just sitting on a step weeping by herself. And and if you see, she's here. So it's all good. Okay. (laughs) It's all good. Lord was gracious. But I can identify with this woman. You love your child. You're desperate. You see the forces of darkness against it. All the horrible things are going through your mind. She knows Jesus is the only one who can save her. And so faith cries out to Jesus because it knows that Jesus is the only one who can deliver you from the evil one the only one who can deliver you from evil. And so you can see that the great faith that this woman has is driven by a helplessness. It sees nothing in oneself. It recognizes there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, let alone another. It drives us to place our trust in him. Only when you see your utter need for Jesus will you see him as your savior. Only when you see your desperate need do you see how great he is. And such faith cries out to him because it acknowledges him for who he is. And this is exactly what the woman does. Not only does she cry out, have mercy on me, she, she identifies him. She says, oh Lord, son of David. Again, we're not privy to how does she know these things. But here's what we do know, is that she knows who Jesus is better than anybody in Israel seems to know who Jesus is. The only people who have been able to identify him as the son of David is the father at his baptism and blind people and demons. Israel, the children at the table, as Jesus is going to refer to, do not recognize him. But she does. She knows who Jesus is. He's the Lord and he's the Messiah. The son of David. See, true faith, it's not empty, is it? It recognizes and identifies and trusts in Jesus for how he has revealed himself. It recognizes that he is the Lord, the Christ. This is what the the apostles speak about. You think about Romans 10.9. What does Paul exhort us? That great text A great passage, if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord, which is an expression of your heart. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will then be what? Saved. But you must see him and believe in him and express that faith through your mouth that he is Lord. Well, this woman does that. She illustrates what it means to call upon Jesus and confess him as Lord. It's a humble cry, isn't it? It's a humble cry, crying out for mercy, crying out and and pleading and throwing yourself upon his grace and kindness, asking him, begging him, please have mercy on me. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it means to call upon him. It's to plead with him, beg him, show mercy to me. However, as we see all this, you see these humble expressions of this woman's faith, something utterly shocking happens, doesn't it? 
the story takes a turn that we're, we're not expecting. Because look in verse 23, look at what Matthew records. But he, that's Jesus, did not answer her a word. Jesus ignores her and just keeps on walking. What is going on here? I think for many people, they said, okay, I see how it is. Forget you then. You're not going to answer me. Who needs you anyway? That's the spirit of our age. Sometimes I hear people say, yeah, I prayed to Jesus once. It did nothing. You just hear this entitlement as if he was to fulfill their bidding. Or, or they say, yeah, I, I used to go to church. I tried it a few times. I was there for a season. just didn't do anything for me. Have you read his word? Yeah, I tried to open it. It's just, that's, that's, are you serious? You want me to read this thing? And any obstacle is too much. And they show that they don't really know who he is because they walk away. And what many people don't understand about faith is that faith is not passive. It's desperate. Faith is not like, all right, I'm here. Do something for me. No, faith is desperate. Jesus, have mercy on me. And this is exactly what the Lord promises in his word. You think about the promises of of what God would do among his people. And he, he promises in Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with what? All of your heart. You won't put your faith in Christ until your heart's all in. And many come and go, don't they? Many come and go. We see it even on a micro level, even at church, you'll see people here for a season, and then they go. They come for a Sunday, and then they're never back. They show some interesting, some interest in the things of God for a season, but very few seek Him with all their heart. And though this woman does not get an immediate response from Jesus, she's not deterred. She doesn't stop. Her faith compels her to keep pursuing Jesus, and that's our fourth characteristic. Faith pursues Jesus. And that's literally what she does. She continues to follow after him, and she continues to cry out to him. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And it, and it gets to such a point that the disciples then begin begging Jesus. You see that in verse 23? 23 and 24, the disciples begin to beg Jesus Send her away, for she's crying out after us. She's like chasing us. Jesus, do you not realize this? She's not going to let up. It seems that the disciples, what they're wanting to do, and we kind of conclude this by Jesus' response, give her what she wants so she'll go away. You're thinking Jesus is going to rebuke these two guys. And he does, but in a different way than we maybe would expect because Jesus' response is, is, again, shocking. It's not what we would have expected. And he refuses to do what the disciples ask. 
Because he says this in verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What? Jesus, you're just going to limit your ministry like that? You may not remember this, but when we were in Matthew 10, Jesus had already instructed the disciples with something very similar. When he sent out the 12, two by two, they go on their first journey, their first mission. Chapter 10, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. And he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he have done this back in chapter 10? And, and even now, this is even more personal. You've got someone desperate crying out to you right there before you, and Jesus ignores her, and then when he does acknowledge her presence, he speaks to his disciples. He says, oh, I wasn't sent for her. Why would Jesus be doing this? Why would he exclude others? Here's why. Simple answer. Because at this point, God's plan of redemption was to come to the Jews first. It was a principle. God had made promises to Israel in the Old Testament. As we even read from Isaiah 2, that the law, the word of the Lord, would go out from Jerusalem to the nations, and then the nations will come in. God is extending his promises that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises of the king who would sit upon the throne. He has come. These promises were made to the house of Israel, and he has come to, to present them. And then it will go to the nations as we'll get to the end of the book. But at this point, in God's sovereign purposes, it's not yet time to go to the, the Gentiles because the offer must truly come to Israel. That's what's going on here. And so in all likelihood, this woman hears Jesus' comment. She probably even agrees with it. And yet she doesn't stop from seeking him. In fact, she escalates her manifestation of her trust in him. And this is our fifth characteristics of faith. She worships him. Upon hearing Jesus' response about the priority of the Jews in his mission, the woman comes before Jesus, and, and what do we see? She, she falls down. She kneels down. And the picture is she's worshiping. She's prostrate before him. She's throwing herself at the king's feet. And she's crying out to him and says, Lord, help me. Help me. And yet now a third time. And even more shocking to our ears. Jesus responds to her and says, It is not right. It is not good. To take the children's bread give it to the dogs. You don't say that, certainly, these days, right? You don't call somebody a dog. What is Jesus doing? Maybe one of those texts that were like, can we like rip this out and get rid of it? We don't want anybody to hear this. 
what is he doing? I, I thought Jesus was gentle and lowly. What happened to the Jesus who said, come to me, whoever is weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm coming. Come all. And yet this Jesus seems to be just totally dismissive, degrading. He seems utterly heartless toward this woman. There's at least two things going on here that we need to understand. I think the reason we struggle with this text is that we actually don't understand the significance of what's going on and the hope, actually, that it's bringing us. And first thing, Jesus is revealing something here. He is teaching us, get this, you're the woman, I'm the woman, okay? We're the Canaanite, we're the Gentiles. And he's helping us see the hopeless state of the nations in contrast to the great privileges that were given to Israel. Who were entrusted with the oracles of God? Who is it that has manifested his law on Mount Sinai? Who is the one who rescued the, a people from uh, slavery and exile from, from Egypt? It was Israel. It was no other nation. Who is the one who's, who raised up his servants and revealed that I am has come to deliver you? It is only Israel that God has done this. All the nations are, are in darkness and held under the power of the evil one. If you aren't of the people of Israel at this time, you are utterly lost. You are hopeless. And this promise of salvation has come to them. And it cannot just be given to another. For God would not be faithful if he had not saved his people. And so what's going on here? This is actually highlighting the reality of how far we were from God. We cannot come into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And if you think you can come to him on your own, you will find him silent. You will find that he has not come for you. And you will say, it is not right to give. What's the children's, my children, to the dogs? If you come on your own righteousness. That is what you will hear. There's something else that he's doing here. And this is the subtle rebuke, not only to the disciples, but Israel as a nation. What he's doing here is he's drawing out her faith. He knows her heart. He knows what's in her. He knows that she will follow him. And the disciples don't understand. Actually, the last time you heard him talk about their faith, what did he say? You have little faith. But of her, he's going to say, you have great faith. She's, he's drawing out her faith, which is an indictment upon Israel, who has all these blessings, all these privileges, and they do not recognize him. They do not share her faith in him. How is it that this woman believes and you don't? Is what Jesus is saying to Israel. Nevertheless, that's what has happened. And even though Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, she worships him. Knowing he is worthy of her servitude. She lays down before her, before him, excuse me. She knows he is worthy of her servitude, and she also knows that she is unworthy of his favor. I've got nothing. 
And this is the sixth characteristic of faith. Faith agrees with Jesus. Many of us reading this passage are offended by maybe these words. How dare him call someone a dog? But what I want you to know is that she's not offended. She's not offended. You see that in verse 27? She said, yes, Lord. Yes, you're right. What you say about me and what would be right or not right, you're correct. I affirm everything that you say. I'm a Canaanite. I'm an idolater who has not worshipped the true and living God. No, I've only barked at him. What are we seeing here? True saving faith involves a confession and an agreement with what God says of us. What does the scripture tell us? We're morally bankrupt. We're spiritually dead. We're children of wrath. We're, we're under God's judgment. We're dogs. And until you see the true corruption of your heart, you won't see your deep need of a Savior. This woman sees her deep need and will only be satisfied, or, or excuse me, and she will be satisfied with what anything that Jesus will give her. She says, yes, I am a dog, unworthy to eat at the table of my masters. That's interesting. You notice that? Masters is plural. She understands, yeah, I'm not part of the kingdom people. I don't belong at the children's table, the children of God who is Israel. I don't belong there. I'm unworthy to eat at the table of my masters, but... Oh, she's so shrewd here, isn't she? But even the master's dogs get to eat the crumbs which fall from their table. I'll take whatever they don't want. Which what we know about Israel at this time is they don't want him. <laughs> they don't want him. She says, yes, Jesus, I may be a dog, but can I be your dog? This woman has sought him with all her heart. And having sought him, she finds him. And that leads us to the seventh characteristic, faith endures with Jesus. Faith, a faith that endures is a faith that saves. And Jesus marvels at her great faith. And on the basis of her faith alone, Jesus delivers her daughter from the evil one. He grants her request. You see in verse 28. Then Jesus answered, O woman. She said, O Lord. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What is this story illustrating for us? It's illustrating the, the nature of true saving faith. That only those who believe in Jesus will what? Will come to him, 
cry out to him, acknowledge him, pursue him, worship him, agree with him, and endure with him. Faith will not rest, brothers and sisters, until it lays hold of Jesus and receives his blessings. This morning, it's at the Lord's table that we now come. And what do we do when we come to the Lord's table? We renew our faith, right? We remind ourselves of the truth of this passage. And we renew our faith realizing that that Jesus has welcomed us, dogs that we are. He's welcomed us not just to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. Actually, he has brought us to the table, hasn't he? He's seated us at the table. He's adopted us as his children. And now we share in all his blessings. In Christ, we are adopted as children, sons and daughters. Made co-heirs with Christ. Adopted into his family. And we are now made fellow citizens with the saints. And so if like this woman, you see yourself. And you place your faith in Christ, having publicly confessed him as your Lord and acknowledged him as such and done so through the waters of baptism, then you have been adopted into this family. You're part of the family of God and you are welcome at the table. But if you have not put your faith in Christ, you don't share this woman's faith. You haven't confessed him as your Lord, you haven't entered through the waters of baptism into his church, or maybe you've professed him, but you have not been following him. Maybe you're living in known unrepentant sin. This time, this, this time as the children gather at the table, you need to abstain from the elements and ponder the forgiveness and mercy that is extended. And proclaimed in the bread and the juice. And it's our desire, know that you would not remain outside the table, but that you would put your faith and trust in him like this woman has, like we have. And that the next time we gather around the table, you're with us. And if that interests you, at the end of the service, I will be out in the lobby. I would love to speak to you about how you can be adopted into the family of God. So at this time, church family, I want to invite you to stand with us as we renew our faith and we recite the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints, once for all and delivered to the saints. And we do so by reciting the Apostles' Creed. And so as you stand, the words will be up on the screen. And I invite you not only to recite these words, but to ponder them and make them your own and make them the confession of your heart. Let's follow along with me. As we recite, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, who descended to the dead, and on the third day rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. 
And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy and universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I invite you to remain standing as we sing in Christ alone. And as we do so, church family, uh, we're going to come up and the elements are here. There's three tables here in the, in the extended worship center in the gym. Very similar, there'll be a table there. We ask that everyone move to your right, kind of make a motion to your right, go down those aisles, grab the elements, and come back by going to the left-hand side of the way going in. If you don't know how to do that, just follow the guy in front of you, okay? All right, let's continue to stand and let's sing in a spirit of worship in Christ alone.